Hello, I'm Charles Bowman, and welcome to this, our latest episode of Off the Agenda. And today we are in Westminster, home of the House of Lords and of the House of Commons and many other government institutions. And I am delighted to be joined by a very special guest, Baroness Lola Young of Hornsey, who has had an extraordinarily impressive career in the arts, cultural and creative sectors, education and politics. Lola works in social services before becoming an actress and presenter of several iconic programmes for the BBC and ITV, both on TV and radio, before navigating her way into education and becoming an academic and emeritus professor at the Middlesex University. She's an author, a broadcaster, cultural critic and a campaigner. Lola sits in the House of Lords as a crossbench peer. She has served on the board of the Royal National Theatre, Historic England, the National Archives and the South Bank Centre. She's currently co-chair of the Foundation for Future London and a patron of Anti-Slavery International. She was appointed Chancellor of the University of Nottingham and a non-executive director of Bloomsbury Publishing in 2020. In 2001, Lola was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire in the New Year's Honours for services to British Black history. And in June 2004, she was created a life peer, taking the title of Baroness Young of Hornsey. It is my great, great pleasure to welcome her to Off the Agenda. Baroness Young of Hornsey, Lola. Can I first of all say, welcome to the Off, the Off The Agenda. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we really look forward to the, the, the discussion ahead. Can I start by going back to, to the beginning? You were born to Nigerian parents in 1951, grew up in North London in foster care, and you were educated at the Parliament Hill School for Girls in London. Can you tell us a little bit more about those early years and how they shaped you as a young person? Yes, and, and I'm delighted to be here, Charles, talking to you because it's a very interesting time in, in history, um, in, in the life of this country, to be having these kinds of conversations. So it's interesting when you said um, uh, London, because I always think North London. So that's really important to me. And don't ask me about my football affiliation because it might cause trouble. But uh, seriously, um, very much um, embedded in that life as it was in the 50s. So if you think post-war rationing still on, um, uh, uh, the NHS is just being formed, and that we talk about the Windrush generation now, so I'm not kind of part of that, so it's a little bit of a different perspective, uh, different milieu, especially being in, in foster care. Um, my foster mother was white, uh, she had several children living in kind of conditions that would not be allowed today, um, but on one level, I would say, I wouldn't say I was happy exactly because I was very conscious of, of not having my parents there, but, um, I didn't sort of really want, uh, for anything. We weren't, we weren't rich. We weren't poor in the sense of, you know, lacking food or anything like that. But my foster mother did look after me without being paid either by the council or by my parents. And I think growing up at that time as a black child, in the school, I think I was the second or third black child in that school, primary school. And then again, in Parliament Hill School, there weren't many black girls, especially not in the upper streams, because I'd passed the 11 plus, so there I was. Um, so I saw a lot of um, injustice, because I guess it was that era when um, 
things like, for example, apartheid South Africa, civil rights movement were being shown on television for the first time. So we were getting this window on this other world and it wasn't very nice, to put it mildly. So that had a huge impact on me. I was very conscious of both the racism in, in this country and how that worked out um, abroad as well. Gosh, an extraordinary time. Moving a little bit further forward, in 1971, at the age of 20, you worked uh, as a residential social worker in the borough of Islington, a role I think you did for two years. Um, I'm just keen to understand what this job was like and what influence it had on your future career path. Yes, well, it, it's, it's part of the continuum with being in foster care because that foster mother died when I was about 14. Gosh. And then from then onwards, I was in and out of children's homes, various children's homes in um, north of London, I should say, but still in the care of Islington. And again, that turned out in retrospect to be quite a tumultuous time. Um, so um, the last children's home that I was working in, in Islington, was in Highbury. And um, uh, actually, I was in care there. That's right. So I was in care there. That was the last home I was in, in as a... As a a, ch a child in care. And then um, I had this very strong sense of wanting to go back and give something back. But I'd applied to university, hoping to be a social worker out in the field. But I would say it was almost inevitable that I wouldn't get the grades at A-level, given my circumstances and my frame of mind at the time. Um, and so I didn't get um, good enough grades to go to university, so decided to be a, um, a social worker, in, in a residential social worker instead, in the children's home. So basically, you're looking after children in the care system. And then following on from that, you actually did go on to pursue your studies, and you graduated from the New College of Speech and Drama in 1975, where you received a teaching certificate in dramatic art. I'm keen to understand the process from where you were uh, in that previous work into that, that educational framework uh, yeah. again. And what really inspired you to choose a, a career path in the arts? Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? And I can sort of look back and put this framework on it, which makes it seem neater than it probably is. But actually, I left a little bit of work experience out. So when I uh, first left school without the requisite A-levels, I went to work for what was then the North Thames Gas Board. And so, and I, I put that in because that was when I, I was elected as a rep for the, um, for the group um, that I was working with. And just to give you a sense of the times, I went to head office to ask if women could be allowed to wear trousers in the office. Gosh. You know, horror, the horror. Um, but but actually, I was quite shy then. It might be sort of difficult to understand that now. I was quite shy and socially inept. I mean, I just didn't. I Having been brought up in foster care in quite sheltered position and then going into children's homes, none of the kind of social skills, um, you know, were there, basically. And I'd, I'd never had anybody to say, oh, this is how you behave in these situations. So I thought doing drama as an evening class, which is what I did first with my cousin, I said, let's go and do some and, and amateur dramatics. Amdram. Amdram, that's, that's yeah. the phrase, Amdram. And um, see how that works out. And so that's what we did. And um, it did sort of instill that bit of confidence in me. And I began to feel, 
you know, that I had a sense of humour and could have fun and all the rest of it. So I thought... And that you were good at it. Well, yeah, although I, I wouldn't allow myself to think that. And it, it, but, it, but it was much more about saying, well, nobody's brought me up, which isn't quite true, but this was me, you know, my bravado. Nobody's brought me up. I can do what I want. I've got no parents saying to me, you can't go to drama school at the age of 21 or whatever I was. Um, or you shouldn't be doing this and forget acting and all this. I thought, well, I'm going to try it. And if it doesn't work out, at least I would have tried it. And I thought I didn't want to get to, I don't know, what seemed terribly old at the time, 30 or 40, and, and sort of say, um, oh, I wished I'd had a go at acting. So I thought I'm going to have a go at it. And I did. And turns out I was quite good. And I could sing as well. That's the other thing I found out. I joined a band and that's how I sort of paid my way through college. Fantastic. And, and you worked as a professional actress almost immediately after you, you qualified, mm. 76 through to 84, and began presenting BBC programmes on TV and ra- radio, principally aimed uh, at young children, including Listening Corner uh, and, of course, play, play, Playtime. How did you get the break with the BBC? And can you tell us a little bit more about that sort of change through from being a, a, a college student into into that work environment. You make it all sound so smooth and straightforward. And of course, it, it, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. Um, and, and actually, I did masses of theatre before I went into television, because in those days, there was more of a separation. And so I did what was then called rep theatre in what were then called, the, wasn't the regions then, it was the provinces. So, you know, very condescending term. But um, yes, I was in, in theatre in different places around the country. And then um, I sort of, um, what did I do? Oh, yeah, I came to um, London to work at Theatre Royal Stratford East. And I played Dick Whittington's cat. Yes. And Bertolt Brecht, Jim Bertolt Brecht, you know. So it's like, you know, a huge range of stuff. And as I was in London, then you'd get producers and casting directors coming to see those productions. And it's actually Humphrey Barclay from London Weekend Television who came and said, hmm, let, let's, let's give her a go on this new um, children's television program. And sort of, um, so I got that, um, well, I can't quite remember the exact sequence, but I know I was doing lots of different stuff more or less at the same time. So we can talk about the Metal Mickey experience. But, but um, the BBC um, work, was kind of interesting, although I was quite aware that, you know, there were certain unwritten rules like you wouldn't normally have two women presenting at the same time or two black women. Um, but it, it was, you know, it was an interesting experience. And um, it was sometimes quite funny because we would go to um, uh, see children watching us in their own home. And they would say things like, how did you get out of the box? You know, they'd look at the television and look at you and think, how did you, how did you get out of the box? It was so sweet. But yes, it, it was, it was all, you know, looking back, although there would have been moments where it was difficult, it was, it was a great experience. Fantastic. And you mentioned Metal Mickey and many people will remember very, very fondly <laughs> your role in that children's sitcom, uh, Metal Mickey, a role you performed uh, from 1980 through until 1983. Can you describe or recollect what it was like behind the scenes as a black actor at that time on mainstream Mm. TV in the 1980s? 
Yeah, that's, that's a good question, actually, because I'd come to that now, these things sort of start, the memories start flooding back. And I'd actually done an episode of, of, of another sitcom that was a London weekend sitcom. I can't remember the title of it now, but it was about a, a black woman being married to a white guy. And so, you know, that was obviously um, sort of focused on um, stereotypes and ideas about race that were trying, they were trying to debunk in, in, in that program. But with Metal Mickey, the role was kind of, I um, don't know what to call it, neutral. It, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't written as a black role with a capital B and capital R. It was more or less, you know, okay, so you're the girlfriend who lives next door and, and that's it, you know, with your mum and dad and, and that was it. So that was quite refreshing, um, uh, particularly for television. Um, and at the time, it was quite sort of far-sighted, I guess, because it wasn't long after things like Mind Your Language, which were pretty appalling, actually, around racial politics. So it was a bit of a breath of fresh air. But it wasn't um, something I was prepared for in terms of being recognized in the street and so on. And actually, you know, today it would be so much more intense and all the scrutiny that would come through social media. We didn't have that, but it was sort of, you know, don't go out when the kids are coming out of school because they'll all be um, looking at you and sort of wanting your autograph and all the rest of it. Did you enjoy it? Was it frightening? Was it... It wasn't frightening, and it was quite amazing to be in a show with Irene Handel. Yeah. And, and, and the thing was, I was like a good eight or nine years older than uh, the my, what was meant to be my peer group within that um, uh, program. So that was quite funny. I felt very worldly wise, particularly given my background, you know. Um, and um, But there was Irene Handel, a total legend, you know, um, sitting there and she was very funny. Of course, she was very funny. But also it was directed by uh, Mickey DeLentz, um, again, circus boy, you know. I'd, I'd sat and watched these people on the television. So... Yeah, it was quite, I suppose, I was in awe for a while. Yeah, I was. It, it was quite awe-inspiring. Fantastic. And we will remember it very, very <laughs> fondly, very fondly, fondly. Um, in 1995, thereafter, you, almost a, a different uh, uh, track, you published Fear of the Dark, uh, Race, Gender and Sexuality in, 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 in Cinema, bringing, and you are an uh, you know, recognised author now. And then from 2001 to 2004, you were head of culture at the GLA, and following which you were created a life peer. That happened in June 2004, taking the title of Baroness Young of Hornsey, of course, in the borough of, of Haringey. And in your time within uh, the House of Lords, gosh, you have done a lot as chair of the all-party par parliamentary groups on ethics and sustainability fashion, sport, modern slavery, and indeed human rights. Um, and part of your scope of the work in the House of Lords has been to improve legislation on modern slavery and a transparency in supply chain reporting. I'm particularly keen uh, to understand the deeper context there about this and your other policy work that you've undertaken in your role sitting in the House of Lords. Mm, it, it's quite complicated, actually, Charles. And so, you know, forgive me if I go on, but do feel free to interrupt me by the same token. Otherwise, you'll get sort of 101 on, on modern slavery. But I guess what I would say is from that childhood and that growing up, I had a very keen sense of 
my own um, interpretation of what was right and what was wrong, you know, what, what was justice and what wasn't. And um, so when I went into the House of Lords, having an arts background, I'm thinking, you know, what am I going to be doing here? Because, you know, um, there's quite a lot um, that's obviously nothing to do with the arts, apparently, on the surface. And then I thought, well, there's all that policy work you've done around equality and diversity and, and just beginning to think about environmental sustainability, too. So, but it was one of those serendipitous things that happened in 2009. I was in my office and somebody called up and said, Anti-Slavery International and what was then called Liberty want somebody to put down um, an amendment to the Coroners and Justice Bill um, that was the then Labour government, um, one of the flagship bills. And um, this this clause, this amendment was about um, forced labour and domestic servitude. And I said, yeah, but that doesn't happen here. And so, of course, I was brief. Yes, it does. So to cut a long story short, that was the start of my journey, yeah. as it were, around uh, modern forms of slavery. And so as as this kind of begun to, um, what well, people began to peel back the layers of what was going on, and people would come to me from the fashion industry and say, look, we've been campaigning for years to try and get the fashion sector to um, be more aware of its responsibilities, particularly when it outsources um, to um, factories overseas. Then we had the awful um, uh, tragedy of Rana Plaza building in 2013, which was a, a real, I mean, it's horrible to say it because of, you know, all the people that died, 1,100 people, uh, 1100 people died, but it was a watershed in terms of um, uh, campaigners being able to say, look, this is part of the problem, problem and you are part of that problem. And it's not just about fast fashion. It's about all the way up the different grades of, of, of fashion companies. So what are you going to do about it? And, you know, sprung from that was an organization called Fashion Revolution. And again, those people have been campaigning about this for years and there was fresh impetus. And I said, well, look, what can I do? Can I do something to support that? I love clothes and fashion. I want to know more about the, you know, the bad side of it. And we can spread um, awareness amongst parliamentarians and, and perhaps the general public and the fashion industry. So that's what we did. So that was 2009. And so it's 13 years ago. And a lot of the things that those campaigners were into then has become much more mainstream. It has and, and more people know about it. So when we talk about supply chains, we're talking about, you know, if you want to take it to right to the very beginning, it's the seed that goes into the ground to grow the cotton, and then the cotton is picked, and then it goes to be, you know, processed, then it goes to be dyed, and then it goes there, then it's made into garments, etc., etc. All of that is, is part of the supply chain. And at any point along that, particularly when it takes place in in countries that don't have sort of very high levels of scrutiny or have weak um, law enforcement, at any stage along that supply chain, you can have people being horribly um, abused um, and, and exploited. And many of those uh, people will be women because garment industry is very highly populated by, by women. So yes, we're talking about places like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, but we're also talking about things that happen here. And I think that's been one of the big challenges for this movement, if you like, um, uh, to, to, to say that don't think it's only about something that happens to other people over there somewhere. And more recently, um, 
I'm sort of pleased to say that people are joining the dots between environmental sustainability, modern forms of slavery. Social sustainability, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So all of those things coming together uh, to me is a welcome move because then we can begin to think about the, 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 the um, um, holistic solutions to holistic problems. But as long as you've got little bits sectioned off here and there, and also if if you're, sorry, did you want to say? No, no, carry on. Sorry, you know, you see what's happened, (laughs) sort of galloping through, trying to get everything in. But, you know, for for, uh, an ordinary consumer, um, you know, if if you've got, you know, like two children and you've got to clothe them for school, particularly now with the cost of living being so high and rising, you know, you are not going to sit down and say, well, now I've got to read through all of these modern slavery statements just to make sure that these clothes haven't come. But you can't, I don't expect that of people. And it's wrong to expect that of people. So to me, the ball is very firmly in the court of government in terms of regulation and legislation and those companies themselves, because they have to have a, they have to review their business models yeah. and, and see that they cannot be dependent on um, on these really exploitative labour systems. It's extraordinary. And you reflect on the amount of change that we've seen in the last 10, 15 years or so. And you mentioned the consumer. I see it even in, in two, daughter, two daughters that, mm. uh, that uh, uh, have changed habits in, in relation to oh, how, how they think yeah. uh, and how they, how they buy. Um, and... and it, yes, a, a huge amount of difference in the awareness that we, we that we see today. But you mentioned the word journey, uh, mm. and clearly this is a journey. How far down the journey do you think we are? What, what do you see as the next steps, and what can we all do to to mm. to, to, to make it even better? That's the sixty-four thousand trillion billion question, isn't it? Um, and I think that what we um, and it's going to sound trite, Charles, but I mean, essentially, we have to work together and we have to recognise what the issues are. So to me, you know, the big um, problems around um, environmental sustainability, around the way that people are exploited, the way that we're encouraged to think like, you know, if we don't buy, particularly for women, but also for, for men as well, particularly younger men, you know, if you don't buy this, then somehow you're not a proper human being. So keep buying stuff. We, we, we have to, we've got to retrain ourselves, but we can't do that on our own. Me switching off the lights, you know, every time I go out of a room is not going to, you know, um, address all of the issues around climate change, right? So, you know, especially when you see big companies and they're building sort of you know, ablaze with lights at the end of the day and so on and so forth. So the, 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 the solutions has to be, it has to be weighted towards, as I say, the companies and the government. Now, for the ordinary consumer, I do think it's difficult because um, I want to say that everybody has a role to play. But again, I'm very conscious of the fact that there'll be a lot of people who would, you know, their role is to try and find the food to go on the table, right? You know, we've got this explosion of food banks, which is, in my view, totally unacceptable. I don't know how we can tolerate that situation. So how can you tell those people, you've got to be a bit more conscious about doing this, that and the other. So, you know, those of us who can should, I think, is my sort of phrase. And and we, you know, depending on where we are um, in terms of our roles in, in jobs and society and what have you, 
we should be pressuring our politicians to do a lot more. We're in the middle of the, our second heat wave of, of, of the summer. We've barely gotten over, you know, the fact that we went over 40 degrees a few weeks ago. And now here we are, we're looking at the high 30s. You know, this hasn't come out of nothing. And so, you know, why isn't there more of a sense of urgency and, and less um, short-term thinking and too much greed still? Yes, long-term thinking. I think that we can, that's something that we can all take with us each and every, every day. I'm going to return to the arts, if I may. And, and you've been a role model to others throughout, throughout your uh, career. And it is, of course, the arts is, of course, a sector where difference counts and where social mobility um, or social media, more to the point, as you mentioned earlier, is more accessible uh, than ever. And many cultural organisations are transforming. Everyone is looking for the next uh, big thing. So I was keen to understand how do we genuinely find the unique talent um, and how do we think these this, the effects of all of this uh, are impacting on platforms and organisations in competing for, in this war for talent of today? Mm. Well, um, as I've already suggested, I'm also a big football fan. So um, I sort of think it's very, the, the parallels are very interesting um, in terms of, you know, in, in, in sport, particularly in football, we're quite happy, as it were, with the idea of elite sports people, right? And like you say, super talented people, you know, for whatever reason, you know, going out there and doing things that other people can't do. And if you look through the um, football pyramid, as it were, as imperfect as it is, especially when you get to grassroots level, it's really open. It's really open. Um, maybe it could be even more open. And we know that there are pockets like girls aren't getting quite as much time on the pitch as, as, as boys, et cetera, et cetera. But by and large, it's much, it, 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 I see it as being much more open than the arts because there's still this thing attached to the arts. And it's on all sides, right? Because some people will come from families that say, what do you mean going into the arts? That's not a proper job. You know, you, you, you can't, you can't do, you can't earn a living as a, as a writer or painter or an actor or whatever. And, you know, it's not respectable or whatever. So, you know, there's that kind of attitude that we need to shift a little bit, I think. And at the same time, some of our institutions, they make all the right noises, Charles, but at the end of the day, what is the difference? Yep. And if I can, if I may, I'll refer back to that moment when George Floyd was murdered a couple of years ago and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. And so, um, you know, you've got any number of cultural institutions with their black square on their Twitter account and their big statements on their websites. Now, there's a really interesting piece of research to be done, which is to go back and look over what happened in the last, whatever it is, 18 months or so with those organizations. Has the makeup of their boards changed? Yeah. Has the makeup of their um, chief executives and, um, uh, you know, senior management team changed? And here, I'm not just talking about racial diversity. I'm also thinking about in terms of disability and social class, because it's, to me, it, it's really clear that still today, the dominant um, force in terms of what we might call the mainstream is still very much a, of a particular kind of art. Now, I think the Arts Council have done and continue to do quite a lot of work around this. 
and I think that's very important work. But I do think that we can get a bit complacent. So if we see, if we see, like we can see now, if you an advertisement break on the channels that I watch at any rate, you'll see there are black people in virtually every single, black and brown people in virtually every single advertisement. But again, so that's okay, but what's happening behind the scenes? If it's no different on the boards, at senior level, et cetera, et cetera, and in terms of gender um, uh, uh, representation as well. So what's the difference? It's cosmetic. We need to get beyond this kind of surface thing. And I think, in, as I say, in sport, it's just quite an interesting comparison. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm just saying that it, it seems to be, I don't know, it, it's complicated anyway. But I, I, I do think that we've got loads more to do in the arts to make it more. Actually, though, what I would say on the other side, you refer to social media, right? So what I know about young people, insofar as I know many young people, um, is that they can make their own work without reference to these big institutions. But we're paying for them and they pay for them as well. So they should have that as a choice, even if they turn it down. Fascinating observation. We must hear before the end of this discussion mm. where your football allegiance lies. Oh. Maybe I shall ask that question. Oh. But anyhow, you, you, you mentioned the Arts Council uh, receiving investment as part of GCMS's Cultural Investment Fund. Uh, how important is it to ensure that these resources, this support, this investment are allocated to diverse programs to sort of help in levelling up and regenerating uh, communities? Uh, and indeed, what is the role that the arts uh, can play in this agenda more more, more broadly? Mm. Well, you know, the um, it's very important. You know, we're talking about public funding. And um, I absolutely support that, although, you know, it's really hard in times of stress, particularly for example, for local authorities. But I've been doing some work with the local government association on this issue of culture and local authorities, because you may or may not know that local authorities put more money into the arts and culture sector than arts council. And uh, yeah, so it's a huge amount of money combined. And um, the, the, the fascinating thing is that you see the potential of arts and culture to fulfill those agendas that you, you just alluded to, like levelling up in a meaningful way. So you, you can see how that would work, particularly as if we look at the creative industries, you know, people at the, the top of those industries will admit we have a diversity problem um, and in all sorts of uh, sort of complex ways. So how do we how do we deal with that, and how can we also contribute to society um, in a way that helps people to understand that arts actually aren't a frivolous sort of thing that we should only do if we've got a bit of spare cash? It's not about that. It's about the contribution that arts and culture make to all of these different areas. Um, mental well-being is a primary one. So that diversity. If you think about think of what happened during lockdown. And, um, you know, a couple of things that um, uh, I heard about, which were really, really encouraging. Um, so an organization um, that I've worked with in the past and a patron of, Autograph, um, they've done a lot of work with neurodivergent people. OK, so mainly all people on the autistic um, spectrum. And, you know, for those young people to be able to express themselves and to do that consistently has been great. And then we have lockdown. 
So what do you do? You know, how do you how do you make sure that that service just doesn't disappear? And so many arts organisations did very similar things. They would send around the materials to people's houses. You know, literally um, give those sort of um, the, the the equipment and the, and the the materials that you need to make work, so you can continue to do that, and then have that contact via Zoom or whatever. And I think you know, once you see, I'm not saying all arts have to do that, but that's the bit of the art sector that I'm interested in. How you can see the difference that it makes to people's lives, nice. to their se- sense of self-esteem. Their, their ability to be, be able to articulate their experiences in a way that is really constructive. And so I think it's absolutely fundamental to me that the public funding for the arts, um, at least a solid amount of that should be used in that way. Um, and again, you know, I'd say to the Arts Council or, you know, any of the other funding bodies in the sector that they, they had been working on this for some time. But again, it's about having a long-term plan. You know, too often what we see is, um, you know, we'll do this for two or three years. We'll do a three-year project on ethnic minorities in dance sector or whatever. And then, you know, like five years later, somebody will say, oh, why don't we do a project on ethnic minorities in the dance sector? You know, so that that, that historical sort of memory thing is gone. And we need that sort of long-term strategy that will produce results. So it is a complicated issue to address. Ben, uh, I could not agree more. And you make a very valid point about the importance of of arts being fundamental to driving prosperity, if I can put, put, put it that way, in society more, more widely. Yeah, just to, to people, Charles. I mean, you know, sorry, to, but, but, you know, this is my argument. If you go and visit the caves where, you know, our ancestors did their drawings, they did drawings. They, you know, people have done art ever since we could. We, we've, we've made work. People decorate themselves in various ways. And so to this idea that it's somehow uh, something that is lodged with an elite group of people, we need to really knock that on the head, I think. Yes. So improving young people's access to arts, culture and theatre and much more needs to be a real priority mm. across our, yeah. our, our society uh, and at the forefront, at the top of uh, of, of sort of our wider agenda. How do we seize that opportunity uh, for the next generation of, uh, of, li- of leaders to help them perform on a global stage uh, and in turn to power that prosperity through culture? Yeah, so two key terms you've used there, Charles. One is uh, leadership mm-hmm. and one is, is the power thing. And I think they're intimately connected. And so what I see is, again, a lot of... Um, almost lip service to, yes, young people, we will do this for them. Okay, well, young people aren't stupid, and their their sort of, their knowledge in many areas will surpass either of ours put together, or both of ours put together. So we know that. So how do we empower them? How do we, will we, even, if, even, even saying give them the space sort of suggests that, um, you know, it's ours to dispense. We, we need to share the spaces so that they can make their voices heard. So there's a project that I'm, I'm going to be involved in. I won't name it at the moment because it's not sort of finalised. And when I looked at the fellow sort of commissioners on this group, one of the things I said, well, I said the thing about diversity. I said, it's not just me, is it? 
and also how are we going to give young people a voice in this? And there's this, we, I mean, I do it myself, you know, if I think, oh, who shall I ask about this or who shall I get involved in this project? You know, often it's people that I know, either of my generation or a sort of cohort underneath, rather than making that effort and saying, who knows who would be some really good young people to um, sit at this table, all of us together, and have that equality of, of, of ability or capacity and ability that enables us to say, this is what is really good for young people. Now, one area that I, I did, um, that I, I'm also involved in in Parliament is looked after children, or I think they prefer to be called care experienced children or care experienced people, I should say. So I'm a care experienced person. So my sort of understanding of my predicament, what, how I felt when I was in the care system, I try to use that, um, uh, to improve matters there. So for me, particularly of late, it's become very important to say, again, not all young people are the same. Just because you get three young people, you know, under 25 on, on, on your board or on your commission or whatever, doesn't mean to say you've solved the problem. What about all those young people in the care system for whom these kinds of opportunities do not present themselves in the same way that they do, like as, as, as my kids or your kids or, or, you know, lots of people we know. So, so to me, again, it's about saying uh, where the voices uh, are marginalised, how can we ensure that they come, if they want to, into the centre and or we go out to the margins and experience, you know, a little bit of what that feels like. Uh, that's a, such a good response to that, uh, to, to that question. It actually draws me very neatly as a segue to what is my final question and a question that I ask uh, all our guests on off the agenda. And it is that we, we live in these complex, as you put it, and challenging and difficult uh, times where hope and aspiration are really needed. Um, what would be the lines of support and encouragement and advice that you would give to that younger generation as they start out on their own career path? Mm, it, that, that's that's the biggie, isn't it? As 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 a young person might say. No, but seriously, it is, it is a very uh, big question. And yes, you're right. It does sort of follow on from what we were talking about earlier. But I would also say that um, for those of us who are in positions of relative power, um, uh, we should this should be our number one priority. So um, I'll tell you what I've been thinking. I've been thinking. Well, how many? young people are now eligible to vote as, as a result of, or will be eligible to vote in, when will it be 2024, the next general election is slated to be, if we don't have an early one. You know, how can we ensure that we drive home the importance of using that voice, right? So I always say to people, don't, you know, don't sit up the corner crying um, if there's something you think you might be able to do. And I think what we need to be able to say to younger people is there is something you can do and these are some of the things you can do. So, for example, I have um, quite a few young people will approach me uh, uh, wanting internships and I, you know, do the usual thing, write in, say what you like. And I, you know, I try to sort of give them a little bit of a, an overview of of how Parliament works and everything and some of the issues. And a lot of them are surprised that things like fashion 
you know, come into our remit. So I said, yes, of course, because in my view, everything is political. So look, and then when I speak to them, they say, I say, what do you want to do? So want to change, you know, the world, want to make it better. And like, okay, that's fine. How do you want to do that? And some of them want to be MPs, some of them want to be local government, whatever, whatever. And I said, that's all, that's all great. I said, or you could also write a book. And it could be even a fiction book. I think some of them, and I give them, try to give them examples of plays and dramas that have helped to change policy. So there's lots of different ways of doing it. So don't feel, it's a slightly long-winded way of saying to young people, don't feel that there's only one way to be successful. Don't feel that success means you're in the House of Lords or you're a top footballer or you're the best singer or you're this and that. You know, the person who makes sure you get your post every day or the person who maintains uh, the paving stones. You know, all of these people are really important to the way we live. So what can you do to contribute to any of those spheres that will help us, um, um, that will help us and, and support not only this country, because I like to take that sort of international view. We can't, we, you know, we're an island, but we're not an island. There are no islands anymore. There are no islands. So, right, you know, and certainly pollution and um, global warming and climate change don't respect national boundaries. So, you know, just to have that perspective, and I always say to, to young people, be open. Be open to the possibilities. Think, you know, you, you could, if you, you could say to yourself, I really want to do some work internationally. But if, if you don't hear, don't allow yourself to hear those words, then you won't get there. But if you, if you hear almost literally sometimes, you know, oh, there's an opportunity to do, um, to get a grant and go and study X, Y, and Z in, in Norway. And you think, oh yeah, that could be the opening that I'm thinking about, even though I hadn't thought about it before. So it's having that sort of open mind, I think is really important too. What a lovely way to, to, to end a fabulous discussion today. But super words, be open to the possibilities, a number one priority for, for us, our generation, uh, empowering that, uh, that next generation of, uh, of leaders, the importance of voice, inspiring them to realise what they can do. Uh, wonderful way to finish. I do have one further question. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dreaded question, isn't it? It's back to football. It's back to football. Yeah. So let me ask you first, can I turn the table on you? Do, um, you, have, do you support a team? I support a number of, uh, of teams, but Ooh. as a, an East Anglian who uh -huh. lives in uh, just outside of, uh, or between Bury St Edmunds and, and Ipswich, mm. and having grown up as a East Anglian, uh, I remember very fondly the days when Ipswich Town attractive wise performed very well yes they so did i will they did on a saturday afternoon i would generally speaking look to see how ipswich have appeared well it's it's so interesting you mentioned ipswich i'm an arsenal supporter right so i got a feeling that i heard on a podcast the other day there was a time when ipswich beat arsenal in in one of the cups um i think it was the fa cup so um all power to you very good <laughs> Well, you've answered my question very well. Baroness Young, Leila, thank you so, so much for joining us on Off the Agenda today. Uh, your story has been inspiring and I'm, I have thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm sure all our viewers will do so too. Thank you.
thank you. We wish you all the very, very best with your very wide agendas ahead and look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Charles. Great questions and a great conversation. Thank you. Well, it has been a real honour and privilege to speak to Baroness Lola Young today to hear her inspiring story and stories. Thank you, Baroness Young, and thank you all for listening. That's all for me other than to say, as always, stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions and inspirational guests. Thank you again and bye for now.